Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Man, Cafe Guys, you all were fantastic. Thank you for leading us in worship today. So good. Open your Bibles, everybody, to Luke chapter 23. Let's jump into the Word. I really miss preaching to the church family. I really do. Um, I feel like I'm preaching into my elbow in an empty room, uh, and, and it's not the same. Um, you know, there's, there, I found one thing today, though, that might be uh, okay. This, this sweater that I'm wearing, I really like it, but I quit wearing it to church because I wore it. Last time I wore it, there was a church member with the very same sweater. And that, you know, but the worst part, I mean, that's okay. I don't, I don't really have to be, you know, always different, but, but it was Rose Gregory. It was like a woman. And, and I know, y'all, I know that this is, a, I know it's a man, I, I am so sure it's a man, I, I, I know this is a man's sweater, but Rose comes in, and I'm telling you, as a pastor, as a man, when you walk into your church, and the first thing you hear is like a lady's voice going, oh, Pastor Tim, you know, cute top, you know, that is, my life was over, and so I've not worn, not worn this, but today, you know, and I, and I guess some of you guys are thinking, you know, if I just stick with Carhartt and Wrangler, you know, that I... I wouldn't be meeting myself, you know, running into women with the same blouse. But uh, anyway, uh, that's it never happens to Eric DeVries, I'm sure, or Jimmy White. Uh, Sherman and Odell have never come out in the same top. I know. Uh, so maybe that's just me. I try to be fashion forward, uh, and it, it blows up in my face sometimes. Um, but anyway, delighted to join you this morning on Facebook Live. God bless all of you. Listen, Thursday night. Ordinarily for the Woodburn Baptist Church family is a very special night. It's Monday, Thursday. It's the night that we celebrate together and remember the, the Last Supper, Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples on Thursday of that week before Easter when he was crucified on Friday. Uh, so we still want to make Thursday night special. So, so families, listen to me, every one of you. I, I want us to still do a special candlelight communion service, but you're going to do it at your house, and I'm going to do it at mine. We're going to meet up on Facebook at 6.30, at 6.30, and, and, and I will walk you through it. But in preparation, I want you to get a candle ready for, for, for your table, and I want you to get elements of the Lord's Supper together. Set aside some bread. If you're ambitious and you want to bake some bread, bake some communion bread, some flat bread, you've got four days. Uh, so maybe that's something you could do as a family, but get a, a candle, set aside some bread, set aside some juice, and be ready Thursday night at 6.30 to join me on Facebook Live. Casey and I will be at our table, and we want to lead you through uh, this time together as a church family. It's not the same as being in the same room around the same table, but it's the same spirit. And we can still do what we can do to uh, remember Christ and make our way toward uh, the cross and toward the celebration of Easter. So Thursday night at 6.30 right here on Facebook Live. Get your candles and your communion ready and join me at 6.30. We will do that uh, together. But, but, but let me jump in. Luke chapter 23 is where we are today, beginning with verse 26. And we'll go through verse 43 today. My grandfather's name was L.D. Uh, L.D. Pearson uh, every time that I, I, I loved my grandfather, I would go see him, and, and he would say sometimes, uh, he'd, he'd say, uh, you know, boy, I saw a real movie last night. And, and I'd say, really? You know, granddaddy, what was it? And, and, then, and, and I knew better than to ask that, because if my grandfather saw a movie, and if he said, I saw a real movie, and then you said, what was it? He was about to tell you the movie. 
I don't mean the title of the movie. My grandfather would tell you the movie. Every scene in real time, if it was a two-hour movie, it took him two hours to tell you about it. And and honestly, it it just didn't mean as much to me having not seen it. I mean, it obviously meant a lot to him because he was there and he watched it, but it did not mean as much to me hearing him tell me about it, you know, in real time for for two hours. It's one of those things where you just kind of had to be there. And for some of you, the cross of Jesus is that kind of story. It's a a sad story that seems to mean more to other people than it does to you. It seems to move some people. It it seems to really grab and change some people, but it really doesn't grab and, and change you. And I would offer that the reason that it means more to some people and not so much to others is when it comes to the cross, you really had to be there. You just had to be there. So let's read Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 26, and I'm inviting you to find yourself there today at the cross with Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. And the soldier seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, let me stop right there. It was very common in Roman executions to have the criminal carry his cross in processional, public procession to the place of execution. Remember, the Romans had perfected crucifixion as a means of executing criminals. And so they wanted wanted it to be public. They wanted it to be seen because they, they wanted it to be a deterrence. So if Jesus somehow is considered to be a, a, an, an enemy of Rome, if he's supposed to be leading some sort of insurrection, then this is Rome's way of saying, this is what happens to people who come up against Caesar, who come up against Rome. So, so it's public. What would not be typical would have somebody else carry the cross. You make the criminal carry the cross. But in this case, Jesus has already suffered the scourging. Remember, Pilate wanted to have him whipped and then sent back out to the people. So Jesus has suffered the incredible beating and scourging from the soldiers. And so apparently at this point, Jesus is already so weak, so very physically depleted that he's barely able to move himself down the road. The soldiers grab Simon, and Simon carries his cross, and the pathetic procession continues. Verse 27, a large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women, and Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us and plead with the hills, bury us. These things are done when the tree is green. What will happen when it is dry? Two others, both criminals were led out to be executed with Jesus when they came to a place called the skull. They nailed him to the cross. The criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself. He's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. 
Soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it, saving yourself and, and us too while you're at it. Other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you today, today you will be with me in paradise. Were you there? Can, Can you find yourself there? By this point, there are a lot of people there. Now, we know that for the most part, the Jewish leaders were trying to arrest Jesus and have him put to death without a public commotion. So the Thursday night trials in the darkness in the courtyard of the high priest's house and then the the break of dawn uh, jury trial, so to speak, at the house of Pilate, all of these things were more or less low-key to trying to keep uh, all of this from public sight because the leaders know that Jesus has some popularity. Now, in some of the movies, you know, you have this amazing crowd going, crucify, crucify. But, but honestly, that was really just the crowd around Pilate's hall. It's the crowd that had gathered there. It would have been the number of people who were there in or around. And, and it, it would have been a number of people. It's called a crowd, a mob. But, but it's nothing like what you're beginning to see now. Now it's public. Now it's daytime. And now people are beginning to understand what's happening. Jesus was well-known, Jesus was popular, and Jesus had a tremendous following. That's what the Jewish rulers were always worried about, that the followers of Jesus would protest. And and so now it's too far gone. There's nothing they can do, but the news is beginning to get out. People wake up in the morning, they they find out what happened overnight, that they see this man carrying a cross coming down the street, and the houses begin to empty, the, the, the streets begin to fill, and now the whole city knows what's happening. Jesus has been sentenced to death. Jesus is making his way to the place called the skull. Jesus is about to die. The the scripture says that that Simon begins to carry Jesus's cross. He follows along behind Jesus, who at this point is very physically drained. There aren't any words recorded since Jesus was in the room with, 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 with Pilate. Remember, Jesus didn't say anything to King Herod because King Herod wasn't worth any words. But, but, but Pilate, he, he spoke a few words, but no words recorded. And in, in, all, in all of the beatings, in, in everything that Jesus has suffered so far, he, he uttered not a word. But on the road, on the road, on the way to Calvary, he encounters these women. Now, there's now a great crowd of sympathizers. It's not really like a parade where they're just watching him pass by. They're falling in line. They're walking along behind him, beside him. And there's a large number of women now that that have begun to follow, to trail behind Jesus, and and they're crying. I mean, they are wailing. They're they're mourning. They're coming to pieces. And Jesus stops and speaks to them. 
Again, I, I remind you, as weak as he is, as, as few words as he's spoken in this whole night long, the fact that he stops and says these words to these women, I, I think that must be significant. So what exactly does he say? What he says is, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Really fascinating. Don't don't weep for me. He doesn't tell them not to weep. He just tells them not to weep for the wrong reasons. And apparently they're weeping, but for all the wrong reasons. Now, even though these women are obviously having a strong emotional response to seeing Jesus now bloodied and carrying the cross, that doesn't mean that they're believers. There's no indication whatsoever that these women are are, are what we would call followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus. These are just now sympathizers, women along the way who are moved to tears at the spectacle of of seeing Jesus, this, this suffering, bloodied, dying Man, and it breaks their hearts, as it would many of us. You don't even have to know who it is. If you have any sort of, you know, human heart beating inside your chest, you're going to be moved at something like this. A man who's done nothing wrong, a man sentenced to death now, publicly humiliated. These women just come to pieces. They begin to weep. But for the wrong reason. Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Understand, Jesus always, and even in this moment, Jesus always is just trying to push people toward faith, toward genuine faith. And while these women are having a very important and profound emotional experience, faith is not primarily an emotional experience. It's not. These women are responding to what they see. But faith is actually a response to things you can't see. And what these women do not see are all the most important things about what's happening. They see a suffering man. They do not see the Savior of the world. They see Jesus, a man condemned to die. They do not see that he is dying for them. They see a man condemned as a criminal. They do not see the sinless, spotless Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. You understand? They see, and what they see breaks their hearts. But Jesus says, don't let your heart be broken. For me, you need to be thinking about yourselves. You see, the the point is, when you fully comprehend what the cross is about, you will be drawn to Christ. When you really understand what's happening, At the crucifixion, you will be drawn to Christ, but you will be concerned for your own soul. You'll begin to understand. I mean, when you fully comprehend, then you realize that this is not just the death of a religious teacher, the the death of an innocent man. It is that, but it's so much more than that. And it's the more than that part that involves you. Jesus says, don't don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, for your children. In other words, there's so much more sorrow in this moment and in all the days to come, so much more sorrow for, for all of us sinners, all of us and our children. There's so much more sorrow in your own soul than what you're going to see displayed uh, at, at the death of Jesus at Calvary. Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, weep for your children. 
That proverb he says there is really, I think, kind of, kind of difficult. If, if, if this is what happens, if, if, if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? I don't really know exactly what that means. I don't know if anybody knows for sure what that means. I think Jesus must in some way be the, the, the green tree. I think it has something to do with it. If this is what befalls an, an, an innocent man, then what do you think is in store for all of the rest of you? Jesus is stopping here to remind the women that judgment comes. The days are coming when you will say, fortunate are the women who are childless. Why is that? Because as, as wonderful as it may be to have children, one of the worst things in the world is to watch your children suffer. And Jesus is reminding them that days of suffering are coming upon all of you. And it'll be better if you never had kids, he says, because to watch your children go through the judgment that comes. Jesus is stopping to talk about judgment and the judgment that's going to come upon them. So that's why Jesus says, don't weep for me. Don't be distracted. Don't let your heart be broken in this moment here for what you're seeing happening to me. Because what's going to happen to you is much, much worse. Much worse. The bottom line is Jesus isn't looking for sympathy. He wants repentance. It's not sympathy, it's repentance. Faith is not primarily an emotional experience, although lots and lots of us try to make it that. Now, I'm not saying that that deeply religious people don't sometimes shed tears We cry a lot here at Woodburn Baptist Church, and I wish we cried more. I mean, Lord knows there's a whole lot to weep over. But faith is not primarily an emotional experience. You're not going to cry your way into heaven. There's so much more that is necessary. It's not a broken heart that Jesus is looking for. It's a changed heart. It's not so much that he wants your pity, your sympathy, your emotion. He wants your surrender. He wants your confession. He wants your commitment. He wants your life. It's not sympathy. It's repentance. Because those who repent find forgiveness. It's forgiveness that he's come to offer. We're doing this so that you understand that there are a whole lot of people around Jesus that day at the cross and I'm wondering if you can find yourself there. There were, among others, two men there beside Jesus that day. They died that day as well. We don't know anything about them, really. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and and John, also mention these criminals crucified beside Jesus. We don't really know who they are. They could have been the, the posse, the, the, the partners in crime of Barabbas, but, but we don't know. We just know that there were three men crucified that day. One was Jesus and the other two, we don't know their names. Notice how Luke introduces him up in verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed Jesus to a cross, and then the other criminals crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And then we don't hear anything else from them until verse 39. And at that point, one of those criminals has a salvation experience on the cross beside Jesus. 
Now we find out elsewhere that in, in, in this moment, during the time that passes on the cross, both of those criminals start out insulting and scoffing and mocking Jesus, which is hard to imagine. If I myself am dying, if I myself am being tortured, I can't imagine that I got any juice left to make fun of the next guy, you know, being, being crucified beside me. I really don't understand their insulting, their mockery. I, I, I don't get that, except that Scripture makes it plain that that's what they did. That's what they both did, except by the end of this day, one of those men, he changes, And he changes somewhere in the Gospel of Luke between verse 32 and verse 39. And I'm just kind of wondering what it is that causes him to change his tune. If if he started out mocking Jesus, hey, you're somehow the the, the Messiah, you got some sort of power, then why don't you save yourself and then save me too? I mean, you know, it's that kind of mockery. Hey, you know, son of God, this would be a good time to work one of those miracles. You know, you, you helped other people, why don't you help us now, help yourself? I mean, it's that kind of mockery, but at some point he shuts his mouth. So what is it? between verse 32 and verse 39 that would cause a hardened, sinful man to soften. I don't know. Monches. It's those words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe it was those words. Maybe it was just watching Jesus take it all. The insults, the humiliation, the, 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 the physical torture. He took it. He takes upon himself all of that. And then he says, forgive them. All that we really know is that there are three crosses at the place called the skull. And I just want to suggest to you that one of them is yours. One of them is yours. On one cross, there is the man who dies without sin. And this is Jesus. And he's the only man, only human being who's ever lived, who lived an entire life and never sinned never told one lie. He never treated anybody on earth with anything less than perfect love. Do you understand that? He never sinned, not as a child, not as a high school student, not in college. I mean, he never sinned, lived this perfect life, which makes him the only one who can pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. He had no sin of his own. If the wages of sin is death, then understand this man's death becomes available for payment because he had no debt. There there was nothing that he owed for his own sin, so he could take upon himself the sins of the world. You understand, this is what makes this horrible, sad story turn into good news. One man this day dies without sin. One man dies in his sin. I don't understand it. You know, the other thief beside him says, what is wrong with you? Don't you fear God? I mean, you're dying. I mean, this is what the other criminal now says once he finally comes to his senses. He talks to the other one who's still mocking Jesus, still, still 
on the cross, bleeding his, you know, breathing out his last breaths, and still he just continues to mock the Son of God. And the other criminal says, what is wrong with you? Don't you have any fear of God in you? You're dying. These are your final words, and with your final breath, you're going to shake your fist at Jesus? What's wrong with you? Understand, one man dies in his sin. There are consequences for dying in your sin. Eternal consequences for dying in your sin. I don't understand how a person literally in the final moments of life would continue to mock and say no to Jesus, but it's exactly what he does. He dies in his sin. And for all eternity, this will be the only thing that matters, the only thing that becomes important about his entire life. This is what makes a difference. This is his defining moment. And in this moment, that will, that will for him seal his eternal, eternal destination of his soul. This is the only thing we can say. He dies in his sin. And then the third man, he dies forgiven. This is one of the most interesting come to Jesus moments that you'll ever hear about. But there are a lot of unlikely places, I guess, for a person to come to Jesus to, you know, to get saved. But I mean, Jesus in his final moments, and, and this third criminal in, in his final moments, they somehow have enough breath left to have this conversation. And if everything else you can ever say about that criminal the fact that he was a criminal. I mean, anything else he ever said or did, this right here is his defining moment. This is what will matter for all of eternity. For, for all of eternity, the only thing that really matters is that in this moment, this man dies forgiven. How does that happen? He just realizes his sin. He looks at the other criminal and says, don't you get it? We deserve this. We know what we've done. This man's done nothing wrong. You understand? When you're sitting there next to Jesus, all of a sudden you compare your life to his and you begin to see the vast, vast difference between his perfect holiness and, and your sin. We deserve this. We're getting exactly what we deserve. We're criminals. We're guilty. He's innocent. It's just that acknowledgement of, of guilt. It's what some people just will not do. It's what some of you right now just will not do. You will not be wrong. You will not be sorry. You will not go down not continuing to, to think that somehow you're going to escape all the consequences of everything you've done. And I'm telling you, nobody here gets out without their guilt unless you come to Jesus. In these final moments, he says, I deserve this. I know that I deserve this, but, but Jesus... Will you remember me? Like, remember him how? Like, remember his rap sheet? Remember that I was the dude that shared the cell with you in prison the night before we all died? I mean, remember what exactly? I don't think he's asking to have all that remembered. You know, let's don't remember, you know, when I, when I, you know, when I robbed the saloon. Let's not remember any of that. But will you just remember me in this moment right here when I cried out to you? Just remember this. Just 
just remember that I call. It's the only thing that matters. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I promise you this day, today, you will be with me in paradise. I said, it's just one of the strangest come to Jesus stories you'll ever hear because like this guy never did a good thing in his life that we know of. We know he was a criminal. We know that he deserved execution. Nobody in the crowd is saying, hey man, maybe this guy deserves another chance. I mean, he's getting what he had coming to him. He never has a chance to go to church. He never gets a chance to do a good deed now. He never gets a chance to bear the fruit of repentance. He never even gets a chance to be baptized. Understand, his salvation is completely apart from anything he could possibly do to deserve it. The only thing he can possibly do, hands nailed to a cross, his last breath creeping out of his lungs. Understand, the only thing he can possibly do is call upon Jesus. It's all he does. It's all he needs to do. His salvation experience may not look like yours or, or, or mine, but it's the same salvation. It's immediate. I, I caught up on the name of Jesus when I was six years old. I was this tall and this wide, little kid, dumb kid. And in the moment I called upon Jesus, I mean, it was immediate, salvation was immediate. I didn't have to wait to grow up. I have to wait to become a preacher, man. I mean, Jesus just saved me in the moment I believed. Salvation is immediate. It's personal. This day you will be with me, Jesus says to him. You will be with me. It's personal. You don't get saved because your grandma took you to church. You don't get saved because you go to church. It's not about other people. This is about you. Jesus says, it's about you and me. And it's eternal. It's about the life that's after this life. Isn't it amazing? When Jesus and the criminal are both hanging on crosses, but Jesus says, you know what? When this day is over, you and me be in paradise. Some things don't mean much unless you're there. Had to be there. I know that Jesus died like 2,000 years ago. None of us were there. Except when I read through that story, I find myself there. I find myself there. I realize it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. That was my sin. When he says, Father, forgive, I believe he was talking about me. When that thief says, remember me, I feel that. And when Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise, I believe that's a promise for me. I was there. 
For some people, it just seems like a sad story that seems to move other people, but not them. Maybe you've always been in that category. It's a story that we celebrated Easter, and, and it really seems to move some people, but not you. Maybe you've just never really realized that you were there. You were there. Pray with me. Jesus, it is not an emotional experience that you want from us. It's not that you want to move us to tears. You want to move us to faith. And I pray for all of those listening in the sound of my voice. Pray, Lord Jesus, that although they're sitting on the couch or sitting in their living room or or in their chair with their iPad, their phone in in their hand, Lord, I, I pray that in this moment, spiritually, you will transport them to the cross. Help them to stand there, to be there, to listen to your words, to hear the promise of salvation, the extension of forgiveness, Lord. It's not a broken heart, Lord. It's a changed, forgiven heart that you want to give us. So, Lord Jesus, help us to find ourselves at the cross that we may know the salvation that you purchased for us there with your life, with your breath, with your blood. Oh, Lord, it'll never mean as much until we understand that we were there. So, Lord Jesus, take us there that we may learn to believe and find life in you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the name of the Savior, the one who died for us.